Hello and welcome to the Humanizing Growth podcast series, brought to you by the Institute for Real Growth. Each week, IIB founders Frank von den Driest and Mark de Swan-Arons will be talking to global leaders and practitioners to discuss what it takes to drive human-centric growth. For more information, visit www.instituteforrealgrowth.com. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening to all viewers from all around the world. A very warm welcome to the Humanizing Growth series. My name is Frank van den Driest. Today I have the great pleasure of um, inviting Hakan Bulgurli, CEO of ArchLeague, a uh, global white goods company that employs over 30,000 people and holds a stable of brands that include uh, Grundig, Beko, and, uh, and quite a few more. Hakan, a very, very warm welcome to you. Let me Thank start you, Frank. by asking you, where are you and, and how do you feel? What's your state of mind at this moment in time? I feel great. It's Friday evening. And uh, yeah, I'm in my office in Istanbul. Uh, very happy. Very happy to be talking to you. Happy. That's a that great way uh, to end the week. Hakan, I, uh, I want to spend the next hour talking to you about vision and about vision into action. I want to talk to you about the vision you have for Archelic. And, and I will ask you to, to paint a picture of what that vision looks like. But I want to start actually uh, a bit back in time very specifically the 23rd of May in 2019. You will remember that day, undoubtedly. That's the day when you um, delivered on a vision and made a vision reality that you had by climbing the Mount Everest. Is that correct? Yes, I did, yeah. Uh, 23rd of May was a very particularly difficult day uh, because I had, uh, well, I'll I'll rewind because you want to talk about vision, I think, uh, both for the company and actually... Any vision has to really start with a self-transformation, becoming a different person or a best version of the person you are. My uh, vision has always been to make Archie the most sustainable business, not just in its industry, but globally, Uh, not globally in its industry, but among any industry. And this is very difficult when you're talking about a global appliance manufacturing business. We consume plastic, we consume steel. Uh, but worst of all, our appliances consume about 30, 40% of the energy in a home, which in turn uh, has a huge carbon footprint in terms of emissions it causes. And I spent a lot of time trying to think what would actually give me the credibility with the teams in the business and refocus the company around a singular purpose, which is sustainability. And at the time, I became aware of the melting glaciers of the Himakal Basin, which literally provide the water, both agriculture and potable water for about 2 billion people. And literally, people think that the monsoon is great, but that comes and goes and it runs off. What these people depend on are the glaciers on the high mountains of the the Himalayas, and they are melting. Uh, In the past 30, 40 years, 50% uh, reduction is very visible. You know, we can actually measure that because we have that data. And it depends on what scientists predictions you use, the next 30 to 80 years at the outset is when the rest will disappear, or at least most of it. And that would mean 2 billion people leaving from where they are. Imagine 
a whole belt of land all the way from Afghanistan, stretching all the way to China and everything in between from the Asia Pacific, Bangladesh, Pakistan, all of those countries, 2 billion people would have to step up onto other people's land. And that scale of climate related migration has never happened. The, the, earth, the first example that I lived in my lifetime is uh, the Syrian crisis, which was completely caused by a lack of water as well. And uh, people don't think that. People think it's Islamists against secularists, it's uh, Assad. It's not. It's simply that the countryside ran out of water for a multitude of reasons. One of the reasons was Turkey built a lot of dams on its side of the Euphrates. Another reason was it was, it was the most sustained drought that the country had seen. And all of this is, is in data. Uh, that created four or five million refugees. One million went to Europe. Four million are roughly are in Turkey. One or two million in Lebanon. But the million people that went to Europe caused re regime change in many places. And we've ended up with people like Orban. So I thought ICE was a good purpose to take the risk. I have three young children. Uh, I have a great job. I run one of the biggest platforms uh, in, uh, in Turkey, definitely the most international business. Uh, so I thought taking that personal risk would give me the credibility. And we centered everything around sustainability, of course. Once I decided it was an eight-month preparation process yeah. uh, where you change your life. I'm an engineer, so you have to break the problem down into smaller parts, training, uh, diet, uh, understanding the mountains. I'm not a mountaineer. I mean, I, I never understood why people would climb mountains to walk back down. I mean, I kind of didn't see the purpose. If you climb up to ski down, I understand that. And I've done that in the past. But I had to relearn something and uh, adapt my risk attitude. And, uh, and it paid off. On the 23rd of May, I, ma I managed to summit. I was very unlucky because it was one of the worst years in the history of the mountain. It was very uh, bad weather, again, caused by climate change. There was a cyclone on the mountain, which is not usual at the end of May. And many climbers lost their lives. But I made it back alive. Uh, I'm a better person. And I think the sustainability messaging uh, works far more effectively when you talk about Everest as well. You know, when you're talking about sustainability to an audience, like we are today, I don't know how many people are listening from all over the world, but you can see them almost checking their email on the screen while they're doing it or looking at their phone for messages. But if I'm talking about Everest, I can bet you none of them are doing that. And I use it as a hook to really interest people um, and talk to them about what's happening to the planet, which is really shocking. And, and so Archidic now has transformed this long-term vision that we already had, but didn't know how to fill underneath into something actionable and executionable on a daily basis. And, uh, and I think this is, this is why I said earlier, you have to be the change yourself if you're going to build a purposeful business and then actually communicate, to your, communicate that through to your customers. I mean, a very simple example here, probably everybody thinks it's a picture, but it's not. It's actually real. It's a, living, it's a living green wall with our vision statement on it. And, you know, it, it's a reminder to everybody I'm talking to that we mean this. We live it. That's really impressive. So you rewind it, which is great because we, we understand where it started. Let, let's now fast forward five to ten years. What, what does Archelic look like and what does the impact of Archelic look like? <laughs> This is an extremely loaded question. I can take it in any direction you like, uh, but five to 10 years are so different uh, in the context of what's happening to the climate. And you have to understand that now when you kind of have this purpose uh, of sustainability and creating a business that's truly sustainable, 
um, you live with that data. And when you live with that data, you, you know, you have to find ways of being hopeful because things are not going well at the moment. Uh, and post-COP, this is especially visible. I'm not expecting COP to be a solution to everything, but it is a place where this gets discussed and the methodology going forward gets set. And there is some hope in that, but there's also a lot of risk. Why am I going to that? Because 2030 seems to be this magic number in everyone's head. Right? Companies keep saying they will be carbon neutral by then. Uh, there's very few service businesses which say like consultants will be net zero by then, but that's easy for them, right? If you're a manufacturing business, a global business, it's virtually impossible. We are already carbon neutral from today. So I don't like thinking in those long-term uh, uh, numbers because what's happened now is become abstract. And part of the problem is when everybody's talking about 2030, 2050, they feel that it's not urgent enough for them to act or commit resources or change their lifestyle. And that is the next generation's problem, which is not true. Unless we tackle the problem today, the problem is going to get much bigger and much more expensive to tackle later on. So um, we like to think that we are where we want to be today. Uh, uh, and that's why we are carbon neutral from today, 2019, 2020, in our scope one, scope two emissions. We are also uh, very far along in terms of durability, recyclability. We recycle the old appliances. We use recycled materials in our new production basis. And uh, we're trying to do everything that we think we want to be in the future today. But for the sake of the question, I will, I will pick 2030 because it's what everybody picks, right? There's only 421 weeks till 2030. The way we look at it is we take our vision where we want to be at 2030 and we weekly report on how, how we're going, uh, how we're doing. What have we done that week towards reaching that goal? And our, reach for two, our goal for 2030 depends on us creating new technologies which don't exist today, innovation and technology, which means we're committing a huge amount of R&D power um, and, and not just human capital, but also hard capital, cash, into coming up with new technologies which will allow us to get there. What is that? We are saying... Globally, we will cut emissions caused by our appliances by 50%. I'm not aware of any manufacturing business in any industry that is making claims so deep because essentially what we're saying is the refrigerator you buy will use half the amount of energy it does by that date than it does today. And, uh, you know, refrigeration technology has been around for 100 years without much change. So yeah. it's a Herculean task. But where we want to be, clearly is the leading, today we lead the Dow Jones Sustainability Index. It just got announced uh, last week, three years in a row now. Uh, and it's a great honor because people usually expect a Swedish or a Dutch or a yeah. Yeah. German company to lead that uh, way. Not an American yet. The Americans have a bit of catching up to do, but definitely European. And coming from an emerging market like Turkey, it's especially relevant because we are a great, most of the increase in emissions will come from developing countries. So the yes, example yes. Is, is critical, but we will continue to lead industry in our sustainability effort. Uh, our, our, our goal is that in 2030, our brands are immediately and easily recognizable to every consumer as the most green and sustainable brand that does the right thing by the planet. I don't think that'll be too difficult because the ones that don't do it will have disappeared by then. I think companies that really don't transform themselves won't exist. Because if you see younger, uh, younger people, the new generation, especially what we call, uh, they all have lettered names. It doesn't matter. People under 30 years old today are aware of the problem. 
and they are blaming us for creating the problem that they will have to live through the difficulties of. And they will particularly reward businesses that actually transform between now and then. So in 2030, I hope to see us as probably the leading um, home appliances and electronics business globally uh, on the back of this sustainability as a business model and a core purpose of existence. That, that's a super compelling and also clear. You make it tangible. I really like how you put data to it and like an engineer cut things indeed up all the way to a weekly progress report. That, that, that's, that's great to hear. So you're on your way for a number of years now. How is it? Yeah, let's stick to the Everest analogy. I don't know the Everest that well, but I know that quite a few mountains actually get steeper once you start getting closer to the top. How is your journey of driving the sustainability? Is it getting steeper while, you know, on your way towards 2030? I, I was just wondering if anybody's actually counting the 421 weeks, if it's correct or not. <laughs> I didn't. But <laughs> uh, it might be 420. It is the weekend, though. And uh, uh, yes, it does get steeper. But uh, we're so far behind, Frank, in, uh, in terms of businesses. Behind in understanding what needs to be done, the scale of the problem, and how easy it is to pick the low-hanging fruit. Everybody has yeah. this misconception that it's going to be expensive, difficult, challenging, and, you know, businesses almost automatically have a reaction to any regulation coming from government, whereas this is an area we need to actually lobby for more regulation to make, a, to make sure it's a level playing field for everybody that pushes the envelope further. Um, but to answer your question in a very factual matter, we have only just now started picking the low-hanging fruit. Uh, we have so much more to do uh, to get further along this journey before we get to the really difficult stuff, you know, the summit push, if you will. Uh, and, uh, uh, but we have enough time between now and then to really plan how we're going to attack it. And actually planning, and then the execution of that plan is really what makes the difference. I mean, for me, I was so scared of uh, the, the whole uh, Everest sort of summit yeah. part that I couldn't sleep at night until basically I said, okay, you know, fear, doesn't solve anything. Uh, there's something called the second step, which is where Mallory disappeared in 1924, yeah. for example. It's a big slab of 30, 40 meters, almost impossible to, it's impossible yeah. to free climb. Uh, but the Chinese uh, attached a, an aluminum ladder in 1965, I think. And that's still there, by the way. You'd wonder how it still stands there, but it's tied down well with multiple ropes. But it's a 2,000 meter sheer drop underneath that. And it's difficult to get onto the ladder, difficult to get off the ladder, lots of old ropes. So I had a similar one built with uh, technicians from the Istanbul airport, you know, which has these giant ceilings. They were building it at that time and they were working, they call them altitude technicians. They all called in sick one, uh, one day and came and helped me build this a replica of that uh, on, a, on a mountain not far from Istanbul, where I went and practiced all day and all night. And then I immediately felt better about it. This is something like that. Uh, I think once you get on the journey and it becomes the purpose of the business, and it has to be for every business, you know, this is, this is what I don't understand. You know, these, for example, online platforms that ship and waste all of that plastic and cardboard and even worse, you know, styrofoam, which, which is poison and doesn't have a half-life. People need to be aware of what it is and react and things will change. 
But um, uh, along the way, you learn so much that the steepness of that mountain and the difficulty, I think, will get easier. And also we'll have new technologies. Uh, I'm a big believer in technology as a part of the solution, which may not exist today, but will be there tomorrow. You laid out a very clear vision, and I, I think you've, you've moved basically from what that vision is to how we get there. And, and that's where I think it gets really, really interesting. Um, it's funny, I just was thinking about your step. You said I climbed also in, uh, in Turkey, a mountain near, uh, near Istanbul, where you put the ladder. I actually once climbed you might know it, Erceus, which is a, like a volcano near yeah, yeah. Cappadocia. Yeah. I mean, it's nothing near like, no, the Himalaya. Beautiful. But it's beautiful. It was a fantastic hike going up there. Um, but the funny thing is what I remember of that hike is that I was with somebody else, but I said, don't, don't stay too close because it's really, I really wanted to focus on myself, the mountain and the next step and nothing else. Like it's almost meditative, that kind of, and that's walking, that's not climbing like you. But still, for me, it wasn't a serious effort. But it was very solo and it felt solo and that's what I wanted. I can imagine that with the goals that, that you've described and the vision that you have, solo is, is not an option. Well, I mean, it's interesting actually uh, that you say that. Uh, I was at uh, uh, a panel, uh, Leaders on Purpose uh, at Glasgow, a few weeks ago. Yeah. And on that panel, I tried to explain that I do actually feel alone a little bit sometimes as a leader, because now I understand what needs to be done and what we can do. When I don't see others doing it, it kind of is a little bit lonely, if I have to say that, or it feels yeah. as though you're pioneering, almost climbing a mountain without a lead guide, you know, you're, you're leading the way. And it can feel, it can feel lonely because you're not sure if there's a crevasse under the next step you take or if it's actually solid ground because nobody's been there before. Yeah. I get that feeling sometimes, but I definitely don't feel alone in terms of the company. I mean, you can ask any corner of Archery today in any market we operate in. And we have you know, 28 factories in nine countries, 50 subsidiaries in, uh, around the world. Ask any of them. Some may be on this call. They will tell you that uh, they work for Archery because of its singular purpose um, on on basically fighting what's coming. I mean, and it's a serious crisis. Uh, so uh, I, I gave you both answers there a little bit, but it's funny you asked that question. And yes, mountains are unbelievable to be alone because that's where you get the self-reflection, the noise disappears, and it is definitely a meditative experience. Uh, I came back a better person, uh, many reasons, because I learned, you know, I probably went there with uh, a lot of, hubris and ego, but came back with my tail between my legs, just grateful to be alive. And, and that just changes yeah. the perspective you have on life of what really matters. As one of the former guests, Hubert Jolie, the former CEO of, uh, of Best Buy, who is now a Harvard professor, said in this same webinar series, it all starts with yourself and, and, and you're saying it as well. That's, that's very clear. And, and you came back a different person, more ready to take on this humongous uh, task. And, and yes, I can totally relate on how it, it feels alone. I read the books of Paul Pullman, I think a similar missionary almost. Uh, but, but what I wanted to ask is, uh, so is, is collaboration and a coalition, because even though you might feel alone, this is no way you can do it alone. Tell me about about the coalition. You told me that internally within Archlick, 
everybody like it feels like a coalition everybody is in people actually a lot of them join because of the mission uh, but, but but tell me about other coalitions and collaborations that that you are fostering and nurturing to help you of course we can't do it alone what we can do is we can get the credibility and actually build momentum around the execution of the things that need to be done in all parts of the business but essentially Success will be, depend on integrating our customers, both uh, the channels who sell our products, but also our end customer, the consumer. We need to be able to communicate to the consumer, and this is where sustainability marketing comes in, what we are doing so that they can differentiate us vis-a-vis -vis the competition. And this is the goal of any organization, really, is to stand out and differentiate and therefore have the ability to uh, charge more for its services, perhaps, uh, then use those funds, you know, in, in making the business even more sustainable. But uh, I think success is defined by the customer's choice. And for us to say we're successful, we're far from it. We need to fully integrate our suppliers and materials providers and also our customers. And, and, and we're a ways away from that. But I think that's the next step in our development. We will focus almost all of our uh, marketing effort in, into sustainability marketing and specifically explaining why and how each product makes a difference vis-a-vis -vis the environment to the end consumer. Uh, but this isn't enough either. As a, as a leader that has started on this journey, it, uh, there's a responsibility to involve other leaders as well. And uh, you see a lot being done around the World Economic Forum. There's a, a CEO alliance, which is basically 90 CEOs who have signed a letter that declares how we are going to decarbonize our businesses. Uh, there's lot of, lots of people recognizing these efforts. Uh, we just received uh, what we call a, well, what, what is called a Terra Carta seal from Prince Charles, uh, 45 companies around the world, which are actually shaping the sustainable future. And I think these kinds of recognitions also build an alliance among CEOs. So there, you know, I'm there with the CEO of Unilever, the CEO of Axo Nobel, the CEO of the biggest companies in the, in the world. And you are uniting around a common goal, even with some competitors, it doesn't really matter. Uh, I also champion this, at, for example, and there's a global appliance board where all the CEOs of appliance manufacturers are part of. I push for sustainability to be on the agenda every single time. And I don't care if people get sick of hearing me or talking about it, I will keep doing it until it becomes the top agenda item of every meeting that we're at, because that's what it has to be. There's an urgency here. It's not the next generation's problem. And as you said, it has to be solved with a complete collective uh, union of energy, of power, of capital and resources. I, I'm imagining people that listen now or watch this webinar and, and go like, this is so undeniably true. And it's such a burning platform. Now, Suppose one of these CMOs that is uh, watching uh, this call now thinks, I really, you know, I'm going to follow suit. I'll, I'll join that coalition and I'll also do it. What are some of the pitfalls that, that you want to warn them for? You see, now that it's becoming trendy or it's becoming something more, more are aware of, the danger is following what, what is now called greenwashing wildly, right? Yeah. So just making claims which you can't substantiate. Uh, it's very easy to lose credit, credibility in this, uh, in this space. And I think that uh, the more uh, you need to first transform yourself. So I, I'll go back to that. Yeah. 
what you need to do is first become aware of your own impact, your own consumption patterns, and start changing there. Uh, start changing really how you behave, how you're motivated. Behave, when I mean behave, is what you buy. It's so simple. Uh, what you eat. Uh, once you become more aware and you can have some credibility yourself, uh, then I think the rest will follow really quickly because there's anything you touch, you have the opportunity to make a difference. Anything. Because everything we have, the monitor, your shirt, this background, everything is taken from Earth, is material from Earth. We can't still make things out of thin air and we can't bring anything from space. So in fact, whatever we do, we're consuming a diminishing resource. And unfortunately, the economists of the 17th century, 15th century, Friedman, they never gave a value to nature, which is a diminishing resource. So in all our economical models and our markets, the market economy, capitalist system, everything has a value. And as it diminishes, the value should go up. But somehow nature doesn't have this. I mean, this year uh, is on, this year is by now already, uh, the year where we've lost the most amount of rainforest in uh, South America, by definition. We've all been talking about this for so many years and it's still happening. Yeah. And it's getting less and less. The, the, the cost of doing so should be going up dramatically. So this is, uh, I use this analogy because you have to give value to things yourself. And, and soon there will be efficient carbon markets to solve this problem. So anything you buy, whatever carbon emissions it's caused will be priced into that. So it will get more expensive, hopefully taper everyone's consumption, but at least the funds also will be going towards creating carbon, regeneration or uh, carbon credits, regeneration, replanting, sequesting, you know, uh, greener technologies. Um, so I think you need to start first with yourself, then low-hanging fruit, you know, packaging. Uh, if you're a services business, flying, you know, how do you transport yourself? Uh, everything has to be electrified. I mean, something so simple, I installed solar panels on my roof. And when I installed them, they said the payback would be six years. It's not really economically feasible. According to what six years? I mean, if I'm, if I am, because they don't take into account the amount of carbon you are not sequesting. If you put a value onto that, and if you put today's value onto that of 66 euros, that was the market price in Europe today, I've made more money than any other investment I've ever made. And on top of it, because I'm, I can be off the grid if I need, I don't feel bad about leaving the air conditioning on all day, you know, uh, when it's hot in the summer in August or something. So there's a lot we can do uh, with our choices. Where we invest, where, where we invest is also another whole cup of tea. I get it. And I think that the, the main message is very clear. Start with yourself. But I was just thinking, and, and, and you said, well, everybody should do this. And I remember we had... Uh, uh, Patagonia, the CMO of Patagonia in this series, and they actually overnight, the founder changed the mission from, you know, we create fantastic clothing and so whilst not harming the earth. Overnight, he changes, we exist to save the planet. But not all companies can exist to save the planet. Not all yeah. companies can be, can have, all your, if all your competitors would go, we do exactly what, yeah. what Archlick does. In Patagonia's case, and you know, I had the full, fortune to meet him in the past and uh, uh, and actually I follow quite closely what they do. I think it's some of the cleverest marketing in the world, by the way, because you have to think of who their customer set is and they are people who are outdoors who value nature more than others because they experience it. And therefore it's extremely clever marketing. And I think the best kind of marketing in the world is if you're actually just doing the right thing and it has that effect. 
And, and often that kind of marketing comes without marketing dollars attached to it, right? Without a price tag. Now, uh, in our case, it's a little trickier because when people are buying a washing machine, for example, it's harder to explain our washing machine uh, causes less damage to the environment. But an example is we came up with um, uh, a microfiber filter, which filters about 90% or more uh, of, the of the fibers, which filaments, which actually get washed away from uh, using synthetic yarn, fast fashion clothing, right? So today, Zara's H&M's, I don't mind using their name. My team gets very angry when I do, but I tell it to them as well. So I don't mind using their names. They've gotten us used to into this fast consumption habit of changing design. So they're not as durable and they're all made, mostly made from, uh, and these companies are doing a lot of work to mitigate this as well, but I'm telling you how we got here. Yeah. Uh, they use uh, synthetic yarn, which is made from petrol, plastic. And each wash that, I mean, never mind wearing it and the damage it does to your skin and body, but that flushes out at least a million pieces of plastic, which is now everywhere in the oceans. Every fish ever tested anywhere by universities tests positive for plastic now. And then we eat that and then surprise, surprise, we get sick. But it's possible to solve this problem. Now, when we attacked this problem and we actually created this filter, Everybody came back and said, wait a minute, this isn't your problem. This is fast fashion's problem. This is synthetic yarn manufacturer's problem. This isn't your problem. Why are you doing something? First of all, getting the regulator's attention that something can be done in your area. Second, adding cost to the consumer, making the consumer think it's your problem. All of these things are wrong and are counterintuitive. But I can guarantee you today, go into a store, put one of our microfiber filter machines against 10 other brands, even if they look better or more expensive or have a better brand or cheaper, customers increasingly are choosing the one with the microfiber filter because everyone's now aware. So I don't think there is a business where you can say it's impossible to save the planet because we're going to save the planet piece by piece. And every company can do that. Every individual can do that in one way or the other. I have the washing machine with a microfiber filter or I have the biodegradable refrigerator maybe, but you know, ultimately the message is the same. Uh, every business has a way uh, to actually mitigate what they do. I mean, from stopping using paper to the list is very long. It's funny, you know that this series is called the humanizing growth series. And what we mean with humanizing growth is long-term value creation for all the stakeholders. Uh, all the stakeholders being your own people, your consumers <clears throat> and customers, the communities which we operate, all the way to the cosmos that we're a part of, that you've been talking a lot about now, and the capital markets. You've been focusing very much on, on the earth, on, on our ecosystem that we operate in. How do you think of these, these different stakeholders? Which are important to you? I mean, uh, the definition of winning is only possible if you're serving all of your stakeholders. And uh, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll go through the list you gave, but the customer is the obvious one, right? Because the customer... Is Are you why... giving a rank order now? Uh, I, I kind of can. I mean, because I think... Okay. So I'm, I'm taking a step back from the stakeholders. When you approach, approach this problem, if you want to have a save the planet moment, the most important thing is scale. So a small business... Yes, makes a difference. And we need millions of small businesses to come together, making those yeah. small businesses. But the biggest difference is made by scale businesses. So transforming a scale business, we, we sell 50 million appliances a year. Imagine that's a lot of material, packaging, yeah. energy use. 
And uh, think of that accumulating over the years, the number of products in the, in the park, et cetera, in, in markets. Um, so if I can actually solve the customer's problem first, which means enriching their lives, simplifying their lives, uh, giving them food security, hygiene security, but at the same time doing so in a less damaging way to the planet, giving them the choice of an appliance that uses 20% of the energy of what they used to use in the past, for example. That is solving a big customer problem because ultimately we're going to get to a point where each customer is going to be able to measure their carbon footprint, will either be taxed for it or will have to pay for it or will feel bad about it simply. Um, so the customer, I think, is first. And I think the rest follows because if you are serving the customer in the right way, which is also planet friendly, uh, you will have employees which are much more motivated, have a singular purpose. A big solution to this puzzle is actually when, when the teams are coming up with solutions themselves. This can't be top down. It has to be bottom up. And that, that happens when you are serving your purpose. And planet friendly way of differentiating to the consumer is a great purpose. Uh, so customers, employees, uh, shareholders, obviously it's a winning strategy because we're growing double digit, you know, we're disruptive in our industry organically. And uh, customers are now willing to actually pay more for your product because it's the right one doing the right thing. And that's great for the shareholders. And of course, capital markets reward you with cheaper financing. I mean, we came, we issued a, a 350 million euro bond recently, a green bond. It was 200 basis points roughly uh, lower price than the Turkish sovereign bond. So it's not often you get a company wow. in the country which can borrow cheaper longer term than yeah. the country itself. You know? uh, so that, all of these things are vindication of having the right strategy and purpose. And ultimately, I think all the stakeholders have the same interest. I mean, they want a home to live in. Nobody's like Elon Musk and wants to go to Mars. It's too far. It's not very nice to live. Let's preserve what we have here. So everyone has the same interests. And when, when you have interests aligned, I mean, this is basic business principle, everything works much better. That, that's, that's super interesting. Let, let's talk about, let's switch to the, the role that marketing has to play in this. It was very interesting. Two weeks ago, we had a fantastic conversation with uh, Angela Ahrens, and she made a plea, a call to action to marketers to say, well, in the past, the typical successor to a CEO would be the CFO or the COO. She says, in a humanized growth environment, as, as we call it, actually the CMO is that person and should develop themselves because it's in the nature of marketing to be really good at receiving and understanding, understanding needs and wants of all these different stakeholders. So stakeholder centricity should be absolutely at the core of marketing. How do you see that? And how do you work with marketing? And what do you expect of marketing? Um, well, I mean, we have an exceptional uh, marketeer who, who has rebuilt our marketing to, to actually reflect what needs to happen uh, much more vis-a-vis -vis our purpose, I mean. Uh, because uh, the traditional way of marketing is pretty much over now. You know. Uh, agencies, high fees, back margins, media buying, pricing, uh, all of these things uh, are kind of buried now. And I'm, I'm, and I'm not saying that digital marketing, you know, social media, et cetera, has replaced it because that's, that's another uh, cup of tea entirely, but has its own problems as well. 
going forward, the only marketing that's going to work is authenticity and uh, really communicating to the consumer what you're all about. And that better be a purpose which is worthwhile for the consumer to consider you above others. And I would definitely describe the role of a marketeer uh, completely differently now as opposed to five years ago or even two years ago, three years ago, because now as this urgency builds, you know, this, let's go with my weekly analogy, 421 weeks. As these weeks tick along, and they tick along really fast, really fast, consumers are increasingly going to be agitated by their experiences. Fires, floods, droughts, extreme weather events, uh, anomalies which defy their understanding of nature because they haven't seen it before. Um, and, and those kinds of experiences build an urgency, a kind of search for who and where is doing the right thing. So combining that urgency with your authentic message, I think, is the future of market. And as this has become the purpose of your business, this person has to live that purpose completely from one end to the other. And naturally, of course, they, they are a natural selection. Again, and I use natural a lot for a reason. Uh, to lead a business like that. Absolutely. Because they live what the consumer needs, wants, reacts to, and they also understand the purpose of the business. And hopefully that translates to the product. Now, what I said is very abstract uh, and many people may not agree, but the what that practically means is the challenge has to be finding the right way to communicate this via the products or services efficiently. And I think a lot of the, the resources, capital, money, human, need to be rethought and reallocated uh, and maybe over a longer term plan of how this can be achieved. It's a challenge because I don't see too many examples. And for us, it's a challenge. I mean, we're a 65-year-old business with legacies, uh, brands. Uh, we have products which are commoditizing. So, you know, many people are brand agnostic. They want their refrigerator to cool, their washing machine to, to wash. And increasingly, especially the new generation, care less about the brand, which is an opportunity. But at the same time, it makes it very difficult for traditional marketing to work. And uh, 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 this is where some creativity is needed and new messaging, new systems, new ideas. But it all has to be built around authenticity. And I firmly believe that. So, so you have a leadership team, and I assume that with your clarity of vision, they all share that, that vision. And, and so does marketing. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so where I was going is... <laughs> I mean, yeah, you know, we, all, yeah, we all climb mountains together. We were just on Ararat in, in um, uh, August, another beautiful mountain. We, we spend time together. Pandemic kind of stopped that a little bit. I'd like to think that everybody believes, believes what we're doing. Of course... There are always varying degrees. You know, we're all human beings. You know, you can't expect everybody to be on the same ship with the same level of motivation, energy, yeah. dedication. What a, a leader's role here is to help nurture that. Uh, sometimes less, sometimes more, but everybody goes through their own cycles. I am comfortable in saying that the leadership now definitely sees why we're doing this and the direction we're going. But there are among them, there are ones which are also needed who question if this is the only way we should be going. Um, and that I find is healthy. But um, 
Uh, one thing I, I think we need to improve in our specific leadership team is more diversity. I see the value of women, you know, in this in this specific topic, in every topic, but especially this uh, topic, invaluable because they really do think differently, and uh, and that you just cannot get. So uh, I would like the team to be more diverse than it is today. We have many women, but we need more, and. Uh, to get even more aligned than we are, the success needs to be more defined, I think. And that's shorter term, but, I, but we're there. I mean, you can ask them yourselves. When I talk to them, it's clearly there. When, when, they, when you know, I hear outside stakeholders talking to them, they're more of an evangelist than I am. <laughs> so I think we're there. That's indeed what my question was about. Are there people that are pushing even harder than you do? Interestingly though, when you talk about diversity, for a company that obviously has strong Turkish roots uh, and is a Turkish company, but is at the same time a very global company, the leadership team is very Turkish. How do you balance? Because I, I think the geographical, but most important or more importantly, even cultural perspectives and diversity, if you are a truly global player, yeah. uh, I mean, must have a clear voice. You know, among our senior leadership, we have uh, an American, a British, I'm Norwegian, but all of these are second nationalities, so they don't count. I understand exactly what you're saying. <laughs> and you're, you're, you're absolutely 100% correct. We are able to attract the best and brightest uh, of the Turkish diaspora. So uh, essentially, people like our CMO who worked for Unilever all over the world for most of her life, our head of communications. She's worked, you know, from the World Bank to different parts of the world, our head of strategy, again, international experience. So we are able to get the best uh, in terms of skill set, but the fact that they are predominantly Turkish is absolutely true. And I think the reason there is uh, the transformation that we've been going through has been very rapid, and so has the growth. Uh, we have not been able to attract the right international talent uh, to work with us in headquarters. It took us a long time to transform the company's language and really standardize uh, the way we operate that would be accommodating to non-native speakers. But at the moment where we are, we're seeing more and more. And mo most of our country heads, regional heads, all our factory heads, et cetera, are international. It's just that the C-suite needs to diversify more, for sure. Not just women, but also nationality-wise. I mean, at this stage, uh, with the leadership claim in sustainability, uh, we have a chance to be the number one, I believe, appliance manufacturer in the world. That is, may seem like a lofty goal where we have about 5% market share globally today. We would need to get you know, double in size, maybe even more when you consider the size of the Chinese players today, but we can get there, I believe it. And uh, for us to get there, we definitely need a more diverse team. So if you look at, at yourself also, and, and you work in all these, I know how many dozens of, of markets around the globe, how do you stay connected? How do you personally listen to these markets and, and, and their needs? The pandemic has been really tough. Uh, again, our, our marketing team came up with a, a method of connecting directly to the consumer because during the pandemic, they were stuck at home, video was available. And we got a lot of insight from that in a lot of markets. Our teams and ourselves directly communicating with consumers. But to me, the biggest handicap was the ability to go to stores, which for me is the singular best source of information in my industry. Uh, you know, the, the, the sales teams will never lie. The customer is there visible. 
and your competitor is there to analyze fit, feel, finish, quality, pricing. Everything is visible in one place. Uh, I, I felt the, the loss of that quite severely. Uh, we've started travel now, but as the company is globalized, we've now realized, and we've just recently announced that we will manage the company from three locations instead of one, uh, because even the time difference can be very difficult. Uh, we will choose, um, going forward, we will manage most of Asia out of Bangkok, and we've just acquired Hitachi, I don't know if you know. So our, our geographical footprint and our market share and presence, and also percentage of sales is now very significant in emerging Asia. Yeah. Uh, so Bangkok will be one uh, uh, base. Amsterdam will be another for Europe and the Americas. And uh, Turkey will, of course, continue for the Near East, uh, Middle East and Turkey. So uh, we're going to have to spread ourselves more thin to be closer to the market and closer to the customer and to be on the ground. Effectively, flying all over the world nonstop is no longer an option just from a carbon uh, perspective. I mean, we will never go back to the business travel that we had. So we need to base ourselves closer to the markets. And we're taking steps, concrete steps for that. Uh, even in the coming months, uh, we are moving senior management around the globe just to better reflect the strategy. Would you say that the pendulum in Archlick is swinging from a more centralized to a more localized? <laughs> this is a long, you know, this is a business school uh, question. What is better to be more localized or more centralized? I, the answer to that is, there are, first of all, the business itself, its heart and soul needs to remain centralized because that's where it came from. That's where the power base is, meaning that's where you have your engineering power. That's where you have your skill set, differentiated skill set existing, your winning strengths. On the other and hand, you mean in Turkey? At the moment in Turkey. So our R&D, et cetera, we will continue to invest. And Turkey has an incredible Incredible. I mean, I tell my friends who own businesses, and it's not in my interest to tell people here, but the, the skilled human capital base in Turkey is unparalleled. And the work ethic is that too. It's a very young demographic. So, and if you take the cost of labor in Turkey, uh, you know, uh, as the Turkish lira loses value, it's extremely cost competitive too. So you get great people at competitive costs. And uh, that means I remember I once looked at it, and this number is quite dramatic, but in Germany for a PhD that only worked 30 hours a week, uh, we could hire eight to 10 PhDs in Turkey who would work 50, 60 hours a week, you know, also more productive, more hungry, more uh, sort of engaged. And that's something very hard to compete with uh, globally. So Turkey will continue to be that base. But I think to be closer to the customer, you really need to be in the markets. And the old way of traveling all over doesn't make sense. Now that you can connect and work with each other, like we are, I mean, you're in, you're in, uh, you're in uh, Panama now, uh, you would be able to connect with the tiny little dish yes. with Starlink, which works unbelievably well, much higher resolution than this. And, uh, and you can connect to any part of the world and work collaboratively. So the best way forward, I think, is a distributed way of managing a business, meaning different functions, heads are in different parts of the world if you're a global business. And they take responsibility of being close to the customer and in the market. And then you work collaboratively like you would if you were in the same office somewhere in the headquarters. Uh, this way of working, of course, will reflect to all uh, teams, I think, where you, know, you will have the best skilled person. We're not there yet. It will take some time. I mean, we'll start with hybrid. Some office for culture is necessary. But eventually, we'll figure out how to onboard people and uh, install culture uh, it helps if your you know, purpose is, is sustainability because everybody understands that very quickly. 
but then we will be able to basically work with people from anywhere in the world. If you add to the dimension global and local, the other dimension of the extent to which you are digitizing the business, I just read the uh, a fantastic HBR article in the late, latest HBR on commerce in China and, uh, and lessons learned. Uh, obviously the ecosystem, the digital ecosystem is different in China, but there's a ton of lessons to be learned. Just briefly touching upon that, how high is that on your agenda? Because if very you read high. those numbers and you're a numbers man, man. Yeah, very high, very, very high on our agenda. I mean, there are also many reasons. Uh, you know, uh, this sustainability drive, uh, for example, is not possible without a very aggressive, and I mean aggressive because uh, you need to be ahead of what's been done before and test the waters again, take leadership positions. I'll give you an example. Our new uh, factory in Ulmi in Romania, uh, it's a lighthouse factory designated by the World Economic Forum. That simply means that it's the most advanced in terms of sustainability, data. This factory, we have probably overinvested in uh, to test different technologies, but it, at the moment, gathers data from 20,000 different points and actually uh, with machine learning and uh, process automation, changes its own processes to be more efficient, both in terms of materials it uses, time, etc., but also resources, energy, water, uh, and, and the factory, I'm super proud of. You know, there's also a bit of PR. You walk in, you've got computer, uh, uh, basically servers on both sides, screens everywhere. You don't see any workers anywhere. That improves quality, productivity, um, you know, so many different things, resource efficiency, sustainability. That was very difficult to get there because that didn't exist as a package. So it took trying a lot of different things. And yes, some of them don't work, but now we have an archaic way of going forward in terms of digitizing our factories. Uh, but this applies to literally every area of, of our life because you know, this may have brought some practicalities, but it's also brought some difficulties. I was late a few minutes because calls are now back to back. We need to change the way we operate yeah. um, so that we're not actually causing too much speed uh, and making it very difficult for humans to keep up with things. But digitizing every part of our life is inevitable in business. And it's the same thing with our appliances. Now, our appliances are all going to be connected. They are already being connected. And this is simply from predictive maintenance point of view. You know, we, we can tell if your machine is going to break down and send somebody before it breaks down. All of these have huge implications to the consumer, uh, to the supply chain, and, uh, and they need to, we need to benefit from this. We really need to benefit from this. I even think, for example, that the biggest use of blockchain, uh, and I've been thinking about this quite a lot recently, is not the cryptocurrencies and the 10,000 people it controls. And, you know, I'm not making a sweeping st statement about cryptocurrencies, but the biggest value coming from blockchain is going to be around tracking carbon emissions from products and manufacturing and supply chains and carbon credits. Uh, and, and, and when that works with efficient carbon markets, we're going to digitize something completely new and it's going to open a completely new door. That's interesting. So we talked about marketing and their role to drive stakeholder centricity. And, and you talked a lot about that. Looking at marketing, what do you see with the digitization and the fact that you can get so close to consumers and, and customers who you said is my number one stakeholder group? What is it that you would, would be your call to action to marketers now before, before we end this, this call? Our habits are changing as human beings. You know? uh, 
I can only think that the closer you get to the consumer, the more dangerous it becomes. It's kind of like Icarus uh, from the island of Icaria, who flew a little too close to the sun. He wanted to fly. He yeah. made of um, wings of wax which melted as he got close to the sun and he fell so it's a dangerous game being so close to the consumer and being in their face the whole time I think marketing will need to take a much more subtle approach of exactly finding out when the consumer needs something and being the solution to that and we're, we're not there yet but I, I believe some tools will, will be developed in the near future that anonymously protecting data, GDPR compliant, ways of being at the consumer right at the moment when he needs you or when he's uh, looking for you. And there are ways, uh, it's, it, at the moment it's complicated, but it's possible. I think that's where most of the energy should be focused. One question that, uh, that maybe we should be ending uh, with, what does leadership mean? Can, can you boil that down to one sentence? <laughs> it means living what you're saying and becoming what you're saying. So you need to transform yourself into what you believe and you preach and then actually live that, that way. Uh, and then once you have the credibility, I think people believe and follow. Great, wise words. Akan, I wanna thank you for a super inspiring and, and rallying, motivating, uh, yeah, vision, but also the steps that you laid out and how how practical and tangible you make them. I think that is uh, something that I have no doubt all viewers, uh, yeah, will take with them and, and hopefully act upon because we do need it. I, I'm with you on that. Thanks again for a very inspiring hour. Thank you. Thank you.